Okay, the first reading is Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and the dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faith or be crushed until he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I am called to you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I will now read the second reading. It's Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothes of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sudeuses coming for his baptism, he said to them, you broader vipers, who warned you to flee from, coming, from, from the coming wrath? Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestors, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I, and I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. The baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the, from John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need him to be baptized by you, and do you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, 
let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all the righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw God's Spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. And the voice from the heavens said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well blessed. Thank you, Nicholas, and thank you for stepping in uh, at short notice to fill in for the technical problems that meant Ruth wasn't able to join us down the line from Ipswich. At the heart of today's reading from Matthew's Gospel is something of a mystery. And it's a mystery that has puzzled people from John the Baptist himself to the biblical scholars of our own time. Now, I'm not proposing that we fully resolve this mystery this morning, but spending a few moments with it might help us find a way into one of the more puzzling scenarios that we meet in the Gospels. And the mystery is this. Why does Jesus come to John for baptism? This story appears in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, and it is alluded to in John's Gospel. So inasmuch as we know anything about Jesus and John, we know the story of Jesus being baptised by John in the River Jordan. But the question is, why? Why did Jesus do this? What was Jesus thinking when he came to John for baptism? Was it a baptism of repentance for sins committed? If it was, then this is somewhat out of step with the dominant Christian teaching that Jesus was sinless and had no need of repentance. Was it a baptism of uh, solidarity with sinners? With Jesus simply standing alongside the rest of us who do need to repent? Possibly, although it's not clear why baptism by John is necessary for this, unless it's simply to underline what has already happened at the Incarnation. Jesus identifying with sinners took place about three weeks ago on Christmas Day. If this is a question that puzzles modern readers, we can take some comfort from the fact that it also seems to puzzle John himself. We're told that John initially tried to prevent Jesus from being baptised, asking instead that Jesus should baptise him. But Jesus argued back, saying somewhat enigmatically, let it be so for now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfil all righteousness. And here we find our first clue as we begin to grapple with the mystery of Jesus's baptism. Jesus is baptised by John to, quote, fulfil all righteousness. We might normally think of righteousness as one of Paul's great themes, with his letters, particularly his letter to the Romans, shot full of language about justification and righteousness. But it's also a concept that crops up again and again in Matthew's Gospel, particularly in terms of the fulfilment of righteousness. And we'll find ourselves coming back to this over the next few months as we uh, have our Sunday readings, readings taking us on a journey through Matthew's Gospel between now and Easter. Matthew's Gospel is often described as the most Jewish of the Gospels. And Matthew's repeated use of this term righteousness is one of the things that indicates 
his particularly Jewish concern. Righteousness, uh, from a Jewish perspective, was a, a, and is a theological concept, finding its origins in the Hebrew Bible, where it's used to express conformity to God's will in all areas of life, from law and government to uh, covenant loyalty to ethical integrity. Righteousness encompasses everything from the way the state is run to the way the individual lives their lives. That's, that's the Jewish concept. This Jewish idea of righteousness then was that when humans conformed to God's will, rather than to any other claim on their life, for example, they were considered just or righteous. Uh, the, the word in the background here in both Hebrew and Greek kind of means both justice and righteousness. To put it another way, the Jewish insight was that because God is righteous, so therefore his people are themselves to act righteously in their behaviour. Or to put it yet another way, righteousness, living rightly, living justly, was considered a visible sign in the life of God's people, confirming their status as members of God's covenant community. How do you know whether you're part of God's people? Well, you know because of righteousness. It was a sign of a covenant that God had made with humans. Righteousness was God's gift to people. How to live rightly, how to live justly. So when people departed from righteous living, when they, for example, worshipped other gods or failed to keep the commands of the Lord, they were considered in ancient Israel to be breaking the covenant. And the ancient Jewish prophets, such as Elijah, would then call them back to repentance, a turning back to living in righteousness, to living a life marked by justice. And this calling of people to repentance, a calling of people to live a life rightly, this challenging of people to submit themselves to God's will, this was a key message of John the Baptist, who was sometimes described as the new Elijah. Like Elijah, John the Baptist's story begins in the wilderness with him baptising people with a baptism of repentance and righteousness. From John the Baptist's perspective, the society of his day had departed from the covenant. It had lost its focus on righteousness. People in the first century Judea were not living rightly. They were not living justly. And so John the Baptist was challenging people to turn, to repent, to start living differently. The baptism of John was a rallying call for those who wanted to join him in his rejection of society. It was a baptism of turning away, a baptism of repudiation of the dominant values of his society and his religion. It was a baptism that marked a commitment to starting to live in a different way from the way in which the world asked you and expected you to live. In the midst of all the pressures to conform, be they ideological pressures, theological pressures, or sociological pressures, or political pressures, in the midst of all of that, and if we think those things are new, they blooming aren't. The first century knew all about that with the Roman Empire, 
dominating the world and society in the midst of all of these pressures to conform to the way society asked you to live John invited people to turn away from an unrighteous society to turn away from an unjust society I think we need to lose the the element of being too, a bit judgy here saying society is unrighteous can sound a little bit like oh I'm super spiritual and you're all not I think it's not about that at all it's about saying society is marked by injustice and therefore the call to turn is to turn towards justice towards living a life that embodies justice and so John the Baptist called people to enter into life in a new kingdom to turn away from the kingdoms of the Roman Empire and to turn towards a kingdom where God was the focus of existence and behavior was determined by obedience to God not by conformity to the status quo so by this reading John's baptism was a radical and non-conformist baptism it was an outward sign of an inward commitment to the rejection of unjust society and it was a turning towards God as a way of discovering a way of living justly and rightly so when Jesus came to be baptized by John quote to fulfill all righteousness as he enigmatically put it what Jesus was doing was he was aligning himself with the non-conformist and radical nature of John's challenge to first century Jewish society it wasn't for Jesus a baptism for the forgiveness of his personal sins rather it was an act of public repudiation of conformity it was a rejection of the compromises by which his inherited religious tradition had entered into an uneasy alliance with the powers that be the Jewish religion in the first century had done a deal with Rome the Jewish kings ruled by proxy and permission of Rome the Jewish priests served in the temple only because the Romans gave them permission and as those of you who know your first century history will know uh, about 40 years after the time of Jesus the Romans withdrew that permission and the whole of Jerusalem and the uh, Jerusalem temple was destroyed by the Romans it was a bit of a knife edge that they were living on and, and Jesus baptizes himself into a repudiation a rejection of these compromises between religion and the state it was an act of commitment to the recovery of the true meaning of the covenant the inbreaking of God's justice and righteousness on the earth and the challenge which John brought to the world of first century second temple Judaism is I think a challenge that echoes down the millennia to us as well it's relevant to us because humans be they first or 21st century humans have a tendency to compromise a tendency to set aside righteousness a tendency to set aside the pressing demands of justice a tendency to then justify to ourselves that compromise as necessary pragmatic or expedient it's just the way the world is we tell ourselves we can't change it so we might as well join in we conform 
And then we try to justify our conformity as we try to justify ourselves by making the same move in our own time that John was challenging in the first century with his baptism of non-conformist repentance. The collusion of the church, the Christian church, with the powers that be from the time of Constantine onwards has reinvented within the church of Christ that same pattern of compromise that led John to take his stand in the wilderness. The tradition of Christendom, the idea of a Christian country, is the same attempt to fuse faith and fatherland that has led to the post that led to the post-exilic Jewish compromises of the first century. And the baptism of Jesus at the hands of John was an expression of his commitment to a radical non-conformist alternative. Jesus' baptism was a conscious and public alignment of him with the radical revolution of the kingdom of God, where compromise is rejected and conformity is confounded. Now that is a version of baptism that I can start to get quite excited about. You may have noticed that we're currently worshipping in a church that rejoices under the name of Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church. And the history of this fellowship has been told and retold by far greater historians than I, so I won't rehearse it again now. If you're interested, it's all on our website. But I do want us to pay attention for a moment to the fact that this is a Baptist church. We are a church that baptises. We invite people into the waters of baptism and we immerse them in expression of repentance and declaration of faith. We do pretty much what John the Baptist did, and many of us here have been through that experience ourselves, following the example and command of Jesus. I was baptised in the Baptist Church in Sevenoaks when I was 14 years old. And the origin of this practice, at least the way that leads to the Baptist churches of the current era, was for baptism to be seen as an act of non-conformity. Baptist churches were not started over an argument about baptismal practice. Baptist churches were started over an argument about religious liberty. If you were living in England, in London, at the early years of the 17th century, it would have been illegal for you not to have your baby baptised. It would have been illegal for you not to at least sometimes turn up for church in the Church of England. And it would have been illegal for you not to pay your tithe to the Church of England. And there were some who said, this is not what religion should be. Religion should be freely chosen. It is a conviction of the heart, not a command of the state. And so the rejection of infant baptism and the rediscovery of the practice of believer baptism were born not out of theological conviction primarily, but from radical political conviction. The dedication we've just had today of young Ruri is a marking of love toward him by his parents and by the community of faith and by his family and friends. But it is not a baptism. He will choose that or not for himself when he is old enough to make such a choice. 
And the baptism of Thomas that we have been celebrating here today is a joyous and challenging ritual that Thomas has freely chosen and entered into. What we certainly would not expect would be for either an infant dedication or an adult baptism to start putting someone's life in danger. And yet, Lucy and Johnny, if you had done today what you just did, but did it 400 years ago, you could have been arrested. Same for you, Thomas. You could have gone to prison. I certainly could have done as somebody doing baptisms. And it remains the case in certain parts of the world that religious liberty is not universal. To refuse to allow the state to determine a person's faith, to take a stand for religious liberty, is not just a religious decision. It is always also a political one. In many ways, we've lost the political significance of baptism, and yet Jesus' baptism at the hands of John seems to be a profoundly and radically politicised act. After all, it sets in place the trajectory of events that about three years later will result in him being executed. Now, I'm sure none of us yearns for a return to persecution in this country. In fact, the commitment to religious liberty for all is as much a core part of our Baptist history as the non-conformist act of baptism itself. The founder of the Baptist movement, Thomas Helwes, wrote to the king, and it has become widely recognised that that is the first plea for religious liberty in the English language, and he argued for freedom for himself as a Baptist, for the Jew, for the Turk, by which he means the Muslim, and he says for the atheist. But nonetheless, we should not lose sight of the radical and political nature of baptising someone in repentance and into righteousness. Baptism is more than a symbol of our personal forgiveness and our identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. It is those things, they're written into the symbol. The water washes you clean of your sin. You go down into the grave and you are raised up to new life. That's all there. But it is more than that. It is also a sign of entry into a radical, revolutionary and countercultural lifestyle that rejects the status quo of conformity and yearns, longs and lives for a world transformed, a world reimagined, a world reconfigured, a world where justice and righteousness are at the heart of human behaviour. Baptism is the initiatory act of the convicted revolutionaries of the inbreaking kingdom of God. It is a rejection of the notion of a Christian country, and it is something that people take upon themselves freely to mark their membership of and entering into a radical new way of living. In our opening prayer, when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, one of the lines there was, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. At the heart of Christianity is this longing for the way that the world is to be better, for the way that the world should be, to begin becoming real in the world as it is 
And we are a people of hope. In spite of it all, we know how awful the world can be. But we are a people of hope. We proclaim and believe and long for the kingdom that is coming into birth in our midst. It is with us today. One of the things Jesus repeatedly said is the kingdom of God is among you, is with you. This is not some pie in the sky when you die vision of heaven. This is the fact that as people reorientate their lives to righteousness and start living justice into being, the kingdom of righteousness and justice comes to birth in our midst and in our world. Politics and theology collide. Jesus, the Son of God, saves the world not through conquest, but through suffering. He brings new life through death and hope into darkness. Because his kingdom is a kingdom of justice and righteousness, and it is breaking in upon the earth as others catch that vision and join the movement. And so Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan, to John to be baptised, and Jesus calls us to follow his example, to join him in his radical and non-conformist vision for the transformation of the world. And so I'm going to echo that challenge for you today. Sometimes witnessing somebody such as Thomas going through the waters of baptism is the thing that makes you think, do you know, I need that in my life. If that is you, come and talk to me and uh, we can easily get the baptistry out again. This is not the biggest deal in the world. If you are hearing the spirit that descended on Jesus as a dove whispering gently into your ear that it is time to reorientate your life and to embrace the baptism of non-conformity, the baptism of righteousness and justice, and then to start living differently after the example and path and command of Jesus, come and talk to me. We can do that. Let's pray. God of love, we thank you that you reach out to us that by your spirit you are present to each moment of our lives and that you are drawing us to you in love. We offer ourselves and our lives now to your service that we might be those through whom righteousness and justice are brought into being in our world. Renew us, we pray. Give us the gift of your spirit, we ask, and draw us ever closer into your love. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord, together we rejoice at the presentation of Ruri and the baptism of Thomas. We commend them both to you. It is good to have them in our community. We want to surround them with our fraternal love and support them in their growth and faith.
We thank you for your son, Jesus, and for the powerful symbol of his baptism as a bold act of non-conformism enjoining us to commit to a new way of living and calling for a radical transformation of our world. Guided by Jesus' example, maybe re may we renew our own commitment, increase our efforts and strengthen our resolve. We ask for forgiveness for so many times we slip back in the passive comfort of routine and conformity. So often settle for the convenience of compromise or hide behind willful ignorance. Dear God, as a church and individuals, help us find the courage, the strength, and the determination to walk in Jesus' steps, not to passively collude and accept the status quo of this broken world, but to stand up for justice and work for a better and fairer society. May we be the non-conformists that personally, as a community, always entities like London citizens speak up and engage on behalf of the vulnerable, those excluded, those who suffer from the hardship of difficult economic conditions, or those most at risk from the effects of climate change. May we challenge the leaders of our cities and countries to keep their pledges. Dear Lord, as we long for peace, we pray for all countries at war, whether in the news headlines such as Ukraine or the many others that are forgotten. We pray for all the people involved, whether leaders, fighters or civilians, to find ways to break the cycles of violence and to act for peace and reconciliation. Dear Lord, we pray for the people close to us who are afflicted by sickness, grief, or other forms of mental or physical suffering. And we name them in our heart. Be with them and comfort them and let us do the same by offering our time, kindness, and attention. We thank you, dear Lord, for your unconditional love for this church, for this service, and for leading us on the path of hope, guided by Jesus' words and example. Dear Lord, be with us. Let us embrace your calling and support each other in our efforts. We ask for all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
May the strength of God sustain us. May the power of God preserve us. May the hands of God protect us. May the way of God direct us. May the love of God go with us this day and forever. Amen.